We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. A question that I think would be better, because I, I, again, it just it is to say, you know, what are some of the medical conditions that have um, that seem to respond or medical? See again. I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but the difference between a medical condition or a person with a medical condition. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. Today I have Susan Bauer-U with me. Susan, in addition to being a professor in contemplative end-of-life care, she's also a director of the Compassion and Care Initiative at the University of Virginia's School of Nursing and an adjunct faculty in that school's Department of Religious Studies. Additionally, she's the health and well-being representative for the executive committee at the University of Virginia's Contemplative Sciences Center. Her teaching and research focus on secular contemplative approaches to foster resiliency in healthcare and in higher education. In addition to her many publications, a list which is as long as your arm, she's the author of Leaves Falling Gently, Living Fully with Serious and Life-Threatening Illness Through Mindfulness, Compassion, and Connectiveness. I met Susan while serving a residency at the Upaya Zen Center during my sabbatical last year. And I was surprised to hear about how she's combining contemplative practices with medicine in a university environment. This is something we don't hear too much about in my neck of the woods here in the Midwest. So I'm really delighted to have you here on the show today, Susan. Welcome. Thank you very much, Michael. So Susan, I'm, I'm curious about your background, and I'm curious to know how you've managed to land yourself in this medical setting doing contemplative work research and blending all that with medicine? Well, I, I started my career as a nurse at the bedside, and my um, this was in the early 80s, and I was working with cancer patients. And at that time, you know, clinical care was, was mostly done in the hospital. 
And in, I mean, cancer care was mostly done in the hospitals, so patients would get all their, their cancer treatments and also would die in the hospital because it wasn't hospice care. So I was really privileged to have some very, very meaningful clinical experiences that provided the foundation for really all of my work that's followed. And when I was in graduate school, and my, my work in graduate school was, was focusing in an area of, of science and clinical science called psychoneuroimmunology, which is just uh, essentially the, the science of mind-body medicine and mind-body practices. It was during that time that I actually started my own personal meditation practice, and that's now about 20 years ago, over 20 years ago. And um, I started meditating as a result of uh, my own um, personal needs. I was going through a difficult personal time and also just spiritually um, was looking for practices uh, that helped me to feel uh, more grounded and more alive. And and, uh, the Buddhist-based mindfulness practices really resonated with me. So, my own personal meditation practice was born, and from there, I was able to see and naturally um, make the bridge between contemplative practices and people who were very sick. Um, I was then able to begin to introduce it into the care of people who are dying and in my work with people just with serious illness, and it just anecdotally at the time it seemed to be really making a difference and um, then fast forward me completing my PhD studies I could begin to do research and follow a program of research that included meditation as a focus of my my research studies. Yeah so it really it just came out of your deep experience it sounds like. Yeah yeah Yeah. definitely uh, informed what I, how I, I could bring the work into my professional work. How did you introduce this to the patients that you were working with back when you first started to do this? Well, it, I think, you know, it's consistent with how I continued to, to bring it into clinical practice and into the work with people who have medical conditions is one thing, you know, it's not... Like we're going in and trying to fix somebody and trying to basically, um, you know, have an agenda that we think you need to be more relaxed and you, we think your life should be better. And so here I am to um, intervene in a significant way and, and to make you all better. And that's not how, how I approach it. It's much more of a fluid conversation, getting to know people, and um, and then very gently introducing practices that seem right to an individual at a particular time. So there has to be this mutual trust, there has to be this reciprocity that um, that is evident, and, um, and it's not like I'm... You know, going to say we're going to necess- we're going to meditate now. It's much more of again a gentle, fluid process of let's just you know gently bring awareness to your body right now, to your breathing right now. Let's just be together. 
and mm. hold a space. And, and so that's the way that I approach it. I know that um, different practitioners approach it in different ways, but that's just the way that makes sense to me. Yeah, you know, it, it's lovely. I Just in listening to you with that very simple bring the awareness here, I, I mean, I feel the room change where I'm sitting. It, it, everything just kind of quiets down a little bit. I'm really struck, especially because you work in the medical field. I, I do as well. And, uh, you know, people, when they're working with, with doctors and they're working with, with the medical community, they're looking to get, they're usually looking to get something, right? They're looking for an intervention. They're looking for a fix. And hearing you put this in terms of this is something that's not an intervention and at the same time within the medical context, to me seems to open up a world of possibilities. And Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, so I'm I'm curious. Oh God, what's the question? I've got, I've got a question that's noodling here, and it, it wants to find its way out. I'm not even sure how to ask it. It's something along the lines of, how is it? How do you work with people in not doing something when they expect you as a medical person to be doing something? Hmm. That's a that's a really good question. <laughs> um, you know, I I think no, I think everybody deep down the most important thing is to be present with one another, and and so that may seem like you're not doing anything, but you are. And you know, if you ask people, do you want just a, a prescription? versus you want someone to actually hear and listen to you and to be with you for five minutes in a way that's caring and really listening. I think most people would choose the latter. I don't know, but that would be, that would be my, my guess. So, you know, so the question is, how do you not do when somebody wants you to do? I think you could, it, it's, again, this is meeting people where they are. And as you're, as you are introducing meditation, there are different ways of approaching it and bringing it into clinical practice. And so if somebody is much more, after you're, you're with them, you, you get to understand their style. And if their approach is, I really want you to do something, help me right now do something, you can then much more formally introduce a guided meditation practice in those settings. But, you know, when I was talking about it earlier, it was much more subtly introducing it where it's not like you're just going to come in, walk in the room and know this is what you want to do. You have to really do a very thoughtful assessment and be present and understand where somebody is to then be able to introduce the best and most skillful way to introduce it. It wouldn't work so well as a flow chart sort of diagram. Oh, patient says this. Well, you know, use this intervention here. It, it really... When I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, the intervention, the action, comes out of a deep sense of presence and connection. Yes, that's the way that I perceive this and the way I approach this, yes. Mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily fit with the traditional medical model, though. Flow, ch- flow charts are, are big. <laughs> flow charts are big, yes, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And um, 
I mean, the kind of medicine that I practice has some pretty wobbly flow charts. Mm-hmm. Because much like meditation, with Chinese medicine, you can't really know what you're going to do until there's a, a connection with the patient and mm-hmm. and a sense of what's actually holding everything in place. All right, mm-hmm. so someone could come in with, let's take something really simple here, indigestion, heartburn. And it's not just, oh, heartburn equals this herbal formula or these acupuncture points. It's, well, who is this person who has the heartburn? That seems to be the first question exactly. that, that has to get answered. Right. So we've been talking about meditation here. And, you know, there's lots of different kinds of meditation out there. So can you tell us a bit more specifically what you're talking about when you are talking about meditation and you know, a little bit about how it's done or, or how somebody would approach it or learn it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The meditation practices that, that I teach are Buddhist-informed practices, and mindfulness is a foundation to those practices, and that they're taught in a way where they are secular, where we speak in a language that can resonate with people regardless of their, of their faith tradition, and um, a way to help people can, regardless of their background, to recognize or f- for them to, to be able to tap into their own suffering that they're experience, experiencing as an entree into, you know, what is possible. So, you know, what is, you know, mindfulness and what is mindfulness meditation? And essentially, I see mindfulness meditation as practices that do help us to live more more fully and more awake in our lives. And mindfulness meditation practices oftentimes use the breath as a foundation because as long as we are alive, the breath is with us and essentially the breath is a oftentimes a neutral can, can be a neutral point of awareness that we can turn to at any time. I mean unless you have a significant respiratory condition, the breath is there just with us. And we know that if we can bring our awareness to our breath, it can be this this anchor to help us to, to settle into awareness. And just a little comment about the breath and, and breathing. You know, that you look at the root word of um, of breath, and it comes from the Latin word spiritus. Ah. And so I love to consider that. Respiration. Yeah, exactly. And so the breath literally and metaphorically gives us life. Yeah, it does. And, you know, yeah, and across faith traditions, the breath is really significant. There's you know nothing specifically Buddhist about the breath. It's there's this universality of of the breath keeping us us alive. So mindfulness meditation, the breath is often used as a as a focal point and a and a, a tuning in and a focus of awareness to settle our minds and to to settle our bodies. Uh, but other aspects of mindfulness also include just a um, this. Uh, moment to moment 
awareness of whatever you're experiencing. It could be an awareness of your body, awareness of other senses, even an awareness of your thoughts and your feelings. And we're bringing that awareness in a way that is curious and it's non-judging and it's this, this very receptive and open-hearted presence to whatever is unfolding moment by moment. And the more that we can um, do these practices in a more formal way, meaning we carve out time just to bring awareness to present moment experience through breath awareness, through other types of awareness practices, the more it's going to permeate our lives when we're not, quote-unquote, on the cushion. This raises a question that I get from lots of my patients. And it's this, it's this portion of the mindfulness that has to do with the awareness of the thoughts and feelings. And the way that people will say this to me is, I tried to meditate, I can't do it, my mind won't quiet down. I tried to meditate, it just doesn't work. I can't make the voice in my head stop. And then they just, it's, they say it's impossible. So have you got some thoughts about this? Yeah, yeah, you know, well, the, the first approach when you're beginning this practice, or not even beginning, you could be doing it for decades, is not striving to do anything to achieve anything in particular. This is tough for Americans. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we basically have a goal in mind and we have to achieve it and that's it. And I think that uh, in modern society, people and with, with mindfulness and meditation getting to be so popular right now, they're going to say, oh, wow, I can, I can be better at my job. I can be better at a better athlete, etc. I could be better at whatever it may be. And that's why I'm going to do it because I want to be better. And then when they and they also have these preconceived notions that when they do it they're going to be relaxed. And I will say that the most important perspective to start is to not have a particular goal in mind. Not striving to be a certain way. Cuz at the essence of the practice is just being open to however you are at that particular time. And so if you are doing a formal practice and you are noticing that your mind is agitated and you can basically only bring awareness to breathing for one breath, that's okay. That's a starting point. And the moment that you notice that your mind is off the breath or whatever your point of of focus is at that at, for that particular time the moment you notice your mind starting to wander that is the practice that is the practice and then you can notice that and then you very gently return to whatever that that focus of awareness is for you again it, it is oftentimes the breath I remember someone out at Upaya saying something to the effect of meditation is not so much about that quiet space that we imagine meditation supposed to be about. It's returning 
when we've noticed that we've wandered away. Mm-hmm. That and is the practice. That is the practice. So this really flies in the face of a lot of popular conception as to what meditation is. Yeah, I do think it, it does. But when people kind of understand that, they have it when they then try to meditate again, or they don't try. I mean, they do. <laughs> well, now you sound like Yoda. <laughs> yeah. When you meditate again, it will, you know, it, there's a, you can approach it differently. And I liken it to like that, the practice being, you know, just the noticing is the practice of whenever your mind starts to wander, that is it. That's the essence of it. It's kind of like a physical exercise. It's like if you're lifting, you know, the, you know, the barbells and each rep is, you know, just very gradually one rep is increasing strength. And it's the same thing with meditation. The moment you notice your mind is wandering, you come back again. That's the practice. It's not staying in that perfect still position, but it's the, the practice of returning time and time again. So in the medical context, I want to bring this back to the medical context for a moment. And in, I mean, let's take it to something like the cancer clinic or hospice. People that are dealing with very serious illnesses, maybe a lot of pain or discomfort or uh, intense psychological states. How does this, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I don't want to talk about it as an intervention. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm striving to choose my words in a way that is not interventionalist. How does this help people through what they're going through? And, and, you know, either from a, I mean, feel free to answer from any of the points of view that you have, including uh, the research that you've done. And mm-hmm. Yeah, so let me, let me um, just clarify and just explore this word intervention. I don't want to get too bogged down with it. But, you know, earlier when we were, we were talking and you asked, how do I approach it? How do we introduce it? And that was in a more uh, natural, unstructured clinical situation, how I, what I, how I responded to that. But as when we do research, we are looking at, we do use the word intervention because there has to be, um, there has to be some general protocol of what you are introducing and teaching to patients. So in fact, intervention is a word that's used in a, and a very common, well-studied, structured, contemplative mindfulness meditation-based intervention is called mindfulness-based stress reduction. Okay. And that is an eight, and that's an eight-week program that has been studied extensively over the last thirty years. And it's a it's a, it's an you know eight-week program. It's generally done in a group. It is done in a group. And it's an outpatient um, program, meaning, you know, it's done in the community settings or in a outpatient clinical setting. And people are taught a variety of um, mindfulness-based practices and learning to cope better with whatever clinical condition that they're facing. And um, this program, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, also called MBSR, 
is also now being introduced and validated in other other settings. And you could read the lay literature to see it's all over the place. It's um, in the military, in schools, hospitals, you know, lawyers are using it, athletes, etc. And essentially, the MBSR program is oftentimes foundational, or at least has been a foundation to develop other what's called mindfulness-based interventions. So I just wanted to make that point of clarification that there are formal programs out there that introduce these practices and teach it more in like a classroom workshop type of setting. So you, you, I believe you asked the question of how somebody who has a serious medical condition like cancer mm-hmm. can incorporate or find value in using these practices? Is that what yes. your question was? Yes. Yeah, so a, a couple of ways I'll, I'll respond, and, and one is related to the psychological responses to having a serious medical condition. So, for example, cancer, but I think we can apply this to many other medical, serious medical conditions. There's this um, thinking about the future, really, really, really being caught up in the future of, oh no, what's going to happen to me? Is my cancer going to get worse? Is it going to cause me pain? Is it going to make me die sooner? What's my death going to be like? And there's this this whole mental um, story, this construction of story that takes place as it relates to worrying about the future. Also, there's a lot of looking back at the past. And it's, again, in this context, it could be, well, what did I do to cause this condition? Was, was I living my life in a way that was too stressful? Yeah. Uh, did I cause my cancer? I see this all the time in my clinic. People are, they're looking for the, they're looking for the root. They, they want yeah. to know, you know, what was it? Even if it's not going to help in the least little bit. There's this funny right. desire. It's like, right. I got to know why. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And there's also a lot of, um, there can also just be this guilt, again, of how you've lived your life. Or it could be this regret for something you've done or you haven't done in your life. And now you recognize that maybe you blew it. And you'll never have a chance to do those things again. Mm. And so there's this constant play of, you know, worrying about the future and regrets about the past. And we're doing all that in this present moment. And in that, in that particular, you know, in that particular moment, you're missing the beauty and the sweetness and the joy and the fullness and the sadness and all there is in this particular present moment. We're not even experiencing what we have right now. And, and in that, being caught up in the past and the future, not being in the present, we also aren't making very skillful decisions of how we're, we're going to be, how we're living our lives. And so that's one way that these practices can help us. They very much can help us to more fully be present and experience the lives as they are right now and to maybe enjoy our lives more or to even hold a space of transitory sadness or transitory anger because that will pass 
and then we will see, you know, another moment that may bring some, some goodness. You know, those very precious moments of connecting with the loved one or connecting with nature, with the, with the, with the sky, with the birds, with our pets. We're not even experiencing those moments because we're caught up in, in, in our, our thinking minds. And with a medical condition, I think those, those, um, the worries and regrets are, are greatly amplified. So that's one, one example. And another example, again, with medical conditions, whether it's cancer or other, relates to how we uh, deal with pain. And, you know, we rightfully resist pain. We don't want to be in pain. Pain is not pleasant. And so with these practices, we're not, we're not saying we have to like unpleasantness. But what we are doing is we are just being with unpleasantness and maybe disentangling uh, the pain and unpleasantness from the pure painful experience versus our mental reaction or suffering to the mental experience. So if we are to give an example of uh, a cancer patient who experiences a new pain or a worsening of a pain, okay? Pain, the initial mental response is, oh no, Pain, pain. There's this like, pain's this one big blob of an experience. It's pain. It's yeah. huge. It could be associated with this really like dark, intense experience. Pain, right? And there's an automatic mental reaction to that that typically happens of an interpretation of what that pain is. We don't really even experience the pain, but it's more a quick, automatic, what is that pain? That pain means, oh no, I'm getting sicker. Oh no, that means I'm going to die. Yeah. Oh no, it's going to get worse from here. Yeah. Yeah. And then that mental um, noting, that mental story that happens, then triggers this emotional response. And oftentimes it's an emotional response of fear sadness, right? There's this strong, physi strong uh, emotional response. And those emotional responses then have a physical, physiological correlate. So fear and sadness, anger maybe, that you're having this, then are associated triggers and a physiological response, particularly the sympathetic nervous system's activated, and from there, our muscles tense up, our sleep is interrupted, and both of those processes make the pain worse. They actually, if you have more muscle tension and you're not sleeping, your pain is going to get worse. And it also is likely to exacerbate an inflammatory response in the body, which then makes the pain worse. And then the cycle continues and it becomes vicious. But if we are to bring a contemplative approach to, uh, to our pain experience, it can look more like just noticing what is the experience? Where am I having the experience? Notice the particular part of your body that is in pain and at 
in that process of exploring where the pain is, maybe notice the many parts of your body that aren't in pain. And that opens up a whole new experience because they can, oftentimes you, it's, it can be the first realization that all of my body is not in pain right now. And when you realize all of your body is not in pain right now, that is incredibly liberating. It's like, wow, there's a lot that's right with me instead of this one painful part of me that's wrong with me right now. So number one, that's very freeing. The other thing is if you tune in to the body and you actually can gently tune in and notice the qualities and the nuances of the experience, again, you disentangle it. Pain doesn't become this one large dark thing, but you notice that there are nuances, there are subtleties. You can name those subtleties Maybe it's burning, maybe it's throbbing, maybe it's tingling, maybe it's jabbing. And you can also notice, again, if you really pay attention, I'll say this is from a lot of experience in working with people, I've seen this, is that they can also notice that the unpleasant, uncomfortable experience actually does change, that it doesn't necessarily stay constant every from moment to moment that there is a this 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 uh, this changing from moment to moment and that is also very mentally liberating because you realize it's not necessarily so bad every single moment and all of me is not in pain and so this process brings openness it brings this openness receptivity spaciousness to a pain experience because pain generally is very constricting it makes our world smaller so if we can begin to bring some light and some spaciousness to the experience we begin to see possibilities of how we can most skillfully respond and live with what is happening and that response may be Maybe I need to rest right now. Maybe I need to take a medication. Maybe I do need to go in and see the doctor. So it becomes this much more thoughtful, discerning, wise response to what is happening once you can bring spaciousness to the experience. Hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern, or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. It sounds like with spaciousness... This big, dark, unformed, I've got to get away from it, bad thing has a potential to turn into something that's informative, maybe even a teacher in some ways. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. But we have to be able to bring awareness to that in order to be able to learn. I've noticed this in some of the patients I have with pain. Part of the Chinese medicine view is, is looking at unpacking the pain. 
where do you feel it? When do you feel it? What does it feel like? What makes it better? What makes it worse? These sorts of things. And I'm struck so often by many of my patients' inability to actually articulate what the pain is. I go, yeah, you know, pain, it hurts. You know, you know, it's pain. It doesn't feel good. And to often in, in the conversations I have, and I didn't even realize that this is happening until this moment when we're having this conversation, but just in my particular inquiry about a patient's pain, they often learn a whole lot more about it because I'm trying to understand it. And it's, I mean, this is actually almost a, I hadn't thought about it this way, but in some ways I think some of the work that I do is kind of a guided meditation into unpacking what is this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's really interesting that people don't even know how they feel. And that's why these mindfulness practices, you know, one foundational to many of the practices is tuning into the body. You know, in the mindfulness-based stress reduction program, really the, the, the first practice that's introduced is a body scan. It's this tuning in to the body because we don't even know how we're feeling. If we don't know how we're feeling, then we're not going to be able to take care of it the way it needs to be taken care of. The body gives us many, many wonderful cues. It's very wise. We just have to listen to it. And so the, the beginning process is to befriend our bodies, to be open, accept, like our bodies, however they are, and then we can better listen and respond to it. Well, that right there is a pretty tall order for some of us, to know, like, and listen to our bodies. This brings up for me again, and this touches on pain, but maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe it's more than the psychological realm. It has to do with being uncomfortable. That what if we look inside and we find something that makes us uncomfortable? And perhaps it's something we've been uncomfortable with a long time. We found all these ways to avoid it, but now it's now we're sitting front and center with it. How do we stay with that and cozy up and, and friendly up to it a bit? Well, you know, it, it's interesting to do that. I mean, I just encourage everybody to do it. <laughs> and um, one thing we know for sure is that the more we try to avoid something and the more we just uh, very quickly reject something, the larger it is mentally and the more power it has over us. And when we can uh, look toward and explore and honestly just notice things as they are, we begin to realize that maybe they're not as bad as we thought they were. And a lot of times it's our own you know, mental creations of the way we think things are that is getting in our way more than anything at all. But we didn't even know we're automatically having those thoughts. So the moment you can begin to turn toward and begin to notice, you begin to realize how much of it actually is the way it is or how much you were thinking it was a certain way and how that was really interfering versus how things actually were. Yeah. I think it was Mark Twain who said this, and I'm, and I'm going to slaughter the quote. I really should look it up and memorize it, but something to the effect of, I have suffered 
many misfortunes in this life, most of which never actually happened. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and, and that brings to a point just to add a, just one last point as it relates to this, this idea of pain and having a, a medical condition, that there is a difference between pain and suffering. And that pain, you know, is this very complex, unpleasant experience. And with, there are physiological correlates of the unpleasant experience. But suffering is added to that physical unpleasant experience, where it's all of the stories that we add on to the painful experience that actually make it worse. It's, you know, there's the Buddhist story about the arrow and the double arrow, where basically, you know, there's this, you know, the initial arrow is the pain. So, yeah, something happened to you. Yes, you have a tumor. Yes, you have a wound. But do you drive that arrow in deeper yourself by adding stories to what that pain means or how that pain limits you? So, you know, just beginning to explore and to notice the different aspects of the pain experience and how much of it is superimposed by your thoughts, it's really very valuable to do. And you may be able to, yes, you can't take away that initial arrow, that initial painful process, but you can not add to that pain and you can alleviate some of the suffering that's associated with that condition. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I've heard it said that pain is inevitable in life, in human life, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the things that happen to us, and then there's the meanings that we make out of that. And the meanings that we make can cause us a lot more mischief, or the meanings that we make can help to get us through whatever process we're in with a bit of equanimity and, right. and, and, and often with resources that we didn't even know that we had. Right. But it is, again, for me, it, being this regular American kind of guy, it seems so counterintuitive because I've been trained my whole life to go do something about it. And this is taking that entire go do something about a process, completely turning it on its head and allowing the moment in the experience itself to come up with some kind of a direction without knowing and finding enough comfort to hang out in that not knowing and let the experience unfold and become the teacher itself. But the doing, Michael, the doing here, Mm -hmm. though... There is a doing to this, and the doing is getting to know yourself and getting to be familiar with who you are right here, right now. That is, there is a doing in that because you've never done it before. You, the wider you, you know, all of the collective us, we don't do that. But what if we did do that? What if that was enough? to begin to give us some answers to then be able to do more wisely. First of all, thank you for that clarification. 
And secondly, it opens up an incredible curiosity for me. That's a good question, what, what would happen. Let me bring this back around to, you know, if our listeners here would like to explore some of this. You mentioned the um, mindfulness-based stress reduction is uh, MBSR is, is one of the ways of beginning to uh, sort of turn the focus around. Let our experience teach us. Uh, have you got some other, some other thoughts, some other ways that people can begin to approach this or learn more about it or incorporate it into their, into their lives? Yeah. So again, um, you know, the perspective that I'm bringing is just for average people of all faith traditions. And so while there are, you know, many resources and, and books and programs and centers that are Buddhist-based, I'm not going to focus on them, but just look in a more general, you know, medical population and just re- regular people. So um, more of the, the basic mindfulness-based resources. So I would say if this is new to you that the, um, the, there is a lot of value in the MBSR program. Again, it's the most highly researched program and, um, and it's, you know, very valuable. And right now, you know, there are thousands of MBSR courses that are taught all over this country and, act- and internationally. And so I would venture to say that most major cities have an MBSR teacher, an MBSR program. So I encourage you to explore that. Um, the the University of Massachusetts Medical School, the Center for Mindfulness, their website has a lot of resources, and um, all of the teachers that teach MBSR should have some connection, have had some teaching through the UMass um, program. I also uh, think that there are great resources um, on the uh, as it relates to research. Um, there's the University of Wisconsin, the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds. Uh, Richie Davidson is a very well-known neuroscientist and researcher who's uh, done pioneering research on the, the effects of um, meditation and particularly mindfulness meditation in the brain and the body. And uh, so that's his program at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, there's a uh, a lot of research that's being organized and um, kept track of uh, through the American Mindfulness Research Association. And they have a, a website, I believe it's the amra.org. Um, uh, the Mind and Life Institute is a really valuable resource as well. has been a, a leading program in helping to engage a dialogue related to contemplative practices in modern science. And their websites, mindandlife.org. And I'll also uh, just uh, put a, a plug in for some of the work that we're doing at the University of Virginia. And we have a, um, a cross university, a pan university program called the Contemplative Sciences Center. And the website for that is uvacontemplation.org. I think it's so cool that you've got a whole department devoted to contemplation. It's amazing. Yeah, well, it's it's actually at the university level, and it it literally touches 
all of the the 11 schools at the university. So we're, we're looking at um, bringing these practices of contemplation and being a whole person who can live in a way that is not uh, so uh, just focused on one self and doing, 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 but helping students to become more aware of who they are so they can more thoughtfully, consciously, you know, live their lives and realize that they're part of a, a greater society. That's fantastic. I'm inspired. Thank you. I'm inspired. And beyond inspired, um, it raises a, a glimmer of hopefulness. It raises a glimmer of... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just it's kind of an expanding feeling in the chest that wow, there's some amazing things happening in this world with all the difficulties that we have to be able to include this kind of reflection, this kind of contemplation in service of of the greater good of what we're doing in the world is is just wonderful. Yeah, it definitely gives it gives me hope. You know, we we're living in a time you know where our society is is an irony that's that's right be, that's happening before us we where we are the most connected hyper connected that we've ever been as a society yet at the same time we are the most disconnected that we've ever been yes and yeah. in that disconnection there comes this incredible loneliness and this disenchantment that's just pervasive in modern society and then throughout the world that's becoming much more more modern and technological. And so how can we come back to this these very simple ways of being and being with who we are as an entree to then being more connected with one another? It's really important. But I, I have great hope with, uh, um, you know, the wave of interest in contemplation and mindfulness right now. It actually gives me a lot of hope. And um, I think that we can look forward to uh, more people being, being open and incorporating um, contemplative approaches into their lives. Well, thank you so much for the work you're doing with this and, and for your practice with this. Uh, it's been delightful to have you here on the show today. Uh, do you have any final closing uh, thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, I just want to thank you, Michael, for you know the wonderful work that you're doing and for you know, hosting such uh, such programs where you can explore these really important questions and help people to you know feel more whole and to live more fully. So thank you for your work. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week. 